1: You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Everything You Wanted to Know About podcast from the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine. I'm Alice Lipscomb-Southwell, the Managing Editor at BBC Science Focus. For this series, we source the most in-demand questions from Google, our listeners, and a few from the team itself, and put those questions to an expert to help you get to grips with the most important ideas and discoveries in science in short, concise, 30-minute doses. This time, we're talking to Dr. John Copley. John is a marine biologist specialising in the deep sea. He went on the first mini-sub dive to the world's deepest hydrothermal vent, five kilometres down on the ocean floor and also took part in the first mini-sub dives to one kilometre deep in the Antarctic. John is also a science communicator and writer who worked as a science advisor on the iconic BBC series Blue Planet 2. He is an Associate Professor of Ocean Exploration and Public Engagement at the University of Southampton and last year he published a fantastic book called Ask an Ocean Explorer which tells you all about the ocean in 25 questions. In this episode, John talks to us about some of the bizarre species that live in the depths of the ocean, the beauty of bioluminescence, and the wonderful ways that some species have evolved to hide, hunt, and survive in the inky depths.
0: I'm John Copley. I'm a marine biologist. I work at the University of Southampton in the UK, and I specialise in trying to understand the ecology of deep sea environments. Uh, So that's the 65% of our world uh, that's underneath water more than 200 metres deep. Uh, And it's a dark, hidden world uh, that we perhaps don't think about much in our everyday lives, though our everyday lives are inevitably connected to it. Uh, And to study it, you need to get down there with some technology and find out what's living where and and what's going on. And that's basically been my career over the past 25 years.
1: (laughs) That's brilliant. So... um... I mean, the vast majority of people, even if they haven't obviously been down into the deep sea, they generally know that it contains a lot of weird life. Um, so why exactly is deep sea life so strange?
0: That's a very good <laughs> question. Uh, <laughs> deep sea life seems strange to us because a lot of the conditions and processes in the deep sea are not the same as the ones you know, in the everyday world uh, around us. Um, and that's why we, we, we notice that things are different Every organism faces sort of trials of life, um, finding food, avoiding becoming food for somebody else, uh, finding a mate and often finding and setting up home somewhere. Um, and in the deep sea, we see lots of what to us are weird and wonderful ways of, of solving those challenges. And, and that's what what makes deep sea life seem um, so bizarre to us, uh, is the conditions that it's coping with. The, the way that those those challenges present in the deep ocean are different to what we're familiar with uh, in the everyday world above the waves.
1: Okay. Um, I mean... We're also taught at primary school that, you know, life needs sunlight to survive. That's, you know, you draw your little food webs when you're sort of six years old. It starts with sunlight and then it goes to plants and then um, animals eat them. But obviously in the deep sea, it never sees a beam of sunlight. So how exactly does life survive down there if there's no light reaching there?
0: So light in the deep ocean, um, light actually goes a little bit further into the ocean than I think we we tend to realise. So uh, there isn't enough light for algae to thrive through photosynthesis beyond 200 metres. And that's in the very clearest sort of open ocean waters. But sunlight still filters down a little bit further than that, and possibly down to as far as about a thousand metres deep, when the last photon from the sun is, is quenched by the seawater. Um, so that's our first zone in the deep ocean that we go through when we visit the deep ocean and it's what we call the, the the twilight zone uh because there's still very faint downwelling light down to that thousand meters now in some places it's much shallower than a thousand meters but there's still this this twilight zone at the top of of the deep sea um but it's not bright enough for algae um to photosynthesize so everything in the deep sea twilight zone and then the the, the zones beyond that which um are forever beyond the reach of the sun's rays. Everything is depending on either food that is ultimately sinking from above, um, you know, a food chain that starts with algae thriving in the sunlit surface waters, or in a few very special places in the deep ocean, we do have places where there are bacteria that can thrive on chemical energy sources, um, either gushing or leaching out of the Earth's crust. Uh, so yeah, we can have some very different food chains in the deep sea, uh, and that's really opened our minds to what's possible for life. How can life be supported in lots of different ways? How might life be supported, you know, elsewhere in our solar system, uh, you know, further out and so on, where where sunlight would be much fainter?
1: Because there have been discussions about that, haven't they? Places like Europa, where there isn't as much sunlight, but they could be using this sort of bacterial life rather than um, you're relying on algae or something like that.
0: Yeah. So we have this process in the deep ocean called chemosynthesis. Um, And not just in the deep ocean, actually. We now know that it it happens in, you know, in dark mud, in estuaries and in lots of other wonderful places as well. Um, But it's life starting with chemical energy instead of sunlight energy. Uh, And yeah, that's opened our minds to the possibilities of life in places like Europa. What you need is an energy source um, and In the deep sea, sometimes that's a volcanic sort of energy source that's driving the system. So anywhere where you've got liquid water and you've got potentially volcanic activity, you could have similar systems to some of the habitats we get in the deep ocean where life thrives.
1: It's super exciting, though, isn't it? Because, like you say, you always think, oh, you need that sunlight to survive, and then you've got this stuff right down the bottom of the ocean that's just, yeah, getting on fine without it.
0: (laughs) Well, we have to be a little bit careful because... um, the animals that we see uh, in these hot spots in the deep ocean and i mean the the most famous place where life thrives from these chemical energy sources in the deep ocean are these hydrothermal vents these hot springs on the ocean floor and we see them in tv documentaries nowadays Uh, and there's this tremendous abundance of animals thriving around them all of those animals need oxygen to survive they're animals just like we are okay we need oxygen The oxygen that they need comes from deep water that flows down into the deep ocean from the poles, and it takes the oxygen from the atmosphere at the poles. How does that oxygen get into the atmosphere? That oxygen has built up in the atmosphere thanks to plant life, photosynthetic (laughs) organisms over a long period of time, building up oxygen in the atmosphere. So there are some microbes that can survive with chemical energy sources and no oxygen at deep sea vents. That's the kind of analogue we might look for elsewhere in the solar system. Um, But for the animals, although they're not getting their energy from photosynthesis at the base of a food chain, um, they are nevertheless dependent on photosynthesis because otherwise they wouldn't have any oxygen.
1: (laughs) Um, So what animal lives the deepest then? What's the deepest dwelling animal we found so far?
0: Well, we know that animals live all the way down to the bottom of the very deepest trenches, and uh, we 've known that since the 1950 s in fact, when they were first dredged up from more than ten kilometers deep. Uh, now, what types of animals live down there is a very interesting question. We know there are crustaceans shrimp like animals um, there are some ones at the bottom of the deep trenches called giant amphipods, and uh, they 're quite interesting they 're normally an amphipod they 're the sort of sandhoppers you get on the beach and you know, they, they can be the size of a of a large flea or whatever, and a few millimeters long. Down at the bottom of the deep trenches, they can be, you know, getting on for ten centimeters long. <laughs> so they're much bigger down there. Uh, they survive just fine um, down at the bottom of the trenches. Uh, we get animals like sea cucumbers living down there as well, which are actually related to starfish that we get on on our in our rock pools as well. Um, interestingly, what we don't get at the bottom of the deep trenches. Are fish, so the deepest known fish is just over eight thousand one hundred metres deep, um, and we don't think fish go all the way to the bottom of the deep trenches because of biochemical reasons of the way that their cells um actually cope with some of the problems of pressure.
1: So it'd have to be just um yeah invertebrates that so would be able to you know hack those really ex- extreme conditions then.
0: So there's probably a, a, a zone at the very bottom of the ocean so that that could be as, you know, as, as deep as two kilometres um, where it's invertebrates only. Um, but there aren't that many trenches that go that deep. So so in terms of actual volume of ocean that's beyond um, sort of eight kilometres deep, um, it's not that much globally.
1: Um so you personally have been in submersibles and you've gone to the bottom of the oceans. Um, what's the sort of coolest or weirdest weirdest creature you've personally seen when you've gone down there?
0: Oh, that's a tough <laughs> question. <laughs> what's the weirdest thing I've seen in the deep sea? Uh, I would have to say it's something called a benthic siphonophore, uh, which is a bit of a mouthful, um, but it's actually a colony um, of organisms uh, so it's it's a, it's this shaggy mass of individual polyps uh, and it it's it looks like a it looks like a monster from old-fashioned <laughs> doctor who you know when they didn't have such big budgets for special <laughs> effects so it's you know it, it can be mm, a, a shaggy looking body that's sort of three feet tall with these polyps um, sort of hanging off its off that central body a neck uh, that it can extend like an old-fashioned car aerial, it can make longer and shorter, with a float on the top that makes it look like a head. Oh, my gosh. And it can push this thing up and down um, in, in, in the water above it. And then trailing behind it, very, very long tentacles that trawl the seafloor. And it it drifts in the very gentle ocean currents at the seabed. It drifts across the bottom of the ocean like a ghost. Uh, And it ratchets its float head up uh, when it encounters a rock or whatever. And then it pulls its body up and sort of (laughs) drifts over this. Angling these tentacles behind it. And uh, it is completely bizarre. It, really weird. And, and it's a colony. You know, that's the other thing. It's not one animal. It's actually a colony. There are polyps there for feeding and there are polyps there for catchy, uh, for, for reproducing and modified polyps that, that form that float structure. Uh, and yet all somehow coordinated. Uh, and the ones that do the feeding are feeding the bounty of that food with the rest <laughs> of the colony. So, you know, it, it, it's an incredible super organism uh, if you like
1: and how old was an organism be that was down there because can't some things in the deep ocean live for just sort of hundreds of years and we think you know some of the deepest dwelling sharks like greenland sharks they could live for hundreds of years potentially just because it's such a stable environment and it's cold down there
0: some things can live for a very long time in the deep ocean. So, yeah, we have things like Greenland sharks that can live for many centuries. And and you can age them from you know, various ways of a bit like tree rings that can give you a, a reliable age estimate for these animals. And it, some of them are older than the United States of America as a country, <laughs> you know, which is incredible. This one animal has, has lived through all of that history, if you like, that's been happening up here. Um, because often the pace of life for some deep sea animals, the pace of life can be slow if it's a scavenger, um, and in between meals arriving from above in the form of carcasses of dead things that sink to the ocean floor, its metabolism is, is ticking over very slowly to save energy. Uh, and so they can be very slow pace of life and they can be very long lived The the same is probably true of those uh, benthic siphonophores uh, that I love, uh, because actually the colony can keep renewing itself. So individual polyps might live and die, but they'll be replaced. So the whole colony could be actually really quite old. Um, It's not been the same polyps necessarily the whole time through. Uh, But yeah, if you think of the whole thing as the organism, it could also be very old.
1: So when you talk about um, some of these animals that you can age them um, as well, so how exactly would you go about that? Can you look at their bones, or when they wash up, you can have a look at them, figure out how old they are?
0: For some animals, um, you you need some sort of structure that is has what we call growth increments. So just like tree rings, you need something that you can use to, you know, to, to actually count the ticks of the clock. Um so uh, for some types of fish, uh, there's a bone in their ear uh, that, where you get rings growing um, every, every year, every season or whatever, and you can use those to count and, and then age, uh, age them. And in fact, you can do even more than that. You can even look at the elemental composition of the different rings, and that tells you about the conditions in which the fish was living when that ring was forming, even things like you know, the temperature of the water. Um, so you can actually get the sort of history of that animal's life, out of that tiny little bone from the hair here as well. Well,
1: that's really interesting. So, um, so when you've got all this deep sea life and its evolution, you say everything's sort of evolving and um, connected together. So do we have quite a long fossil history of these deep sea animals? Because, I mean, obviously, if a lot of them are invertebrates, sometimes it can be hard for them to fossilise. So have we got a good record there?
0: The problem we have with with fossil record of the deep sea is actually plate tectonics, the the system by which the plates of the Earth's crust move around, Uh, because, of course, the oceans, what's at the bottom of the ocean is what we call ocean crust. And ocean crust is created at mid-ocean ridges where two plates are being rifted apart Basically, the plates are riding on convection cells in the Earth's mantle. And in some places, those convection cells are pulling plates apart, a bit like a rift valley forming. And that's what we get at this, these things called mid-ocean, mid-ocean ridges, where the plates are being pulled apart. Uh, and that means, you know, molten rock, magma, ultimately lava is, is welling up, erupting at the seafloor, and making new ocean crust. Uh, what happens at the other end, though, of those plates, the other side of those plates, where they collide with? plates carrying the continents, well, often there they get what we call subducted. So they get pushed back down into ultimately the Earth's mantle where they are melted and recycled. So anything... That, that dies, sinks to the bottom of the ocean, gets buried by the sediments building up, up on top of it. And you might think, great, you know, it, it might fossilise, give us a fossil record. Well, it rides the plate as the plate moves gradually from the mid-ocean ridge and you get that sediment settling on it and, and potentially fossilising things. But then it gets to the subduction zone and it gets pushed back down <laughs> into the mantle and melted. And we that means that that, that fossil record is, is destroyed. Now, very occasionally we get situations where this process goes wrong, where subduction doesn't happen. The, the the motion of the plates kind of flips and a slab of what it would normally be ocean crust going back down into the mantle gets gets slapped onto a bit of continent and can be preserved. And that's where we might get fossil records of, of deep ocean dwelling things. And then occasionally we also have environments that were ocean and now are not where we might see that preservation, but it's rarer than you might think. Um, and so in terms of fossil record we can do quite a lot by comparing different genetic sequences of organisms figuring out their tree of life tracing that back and with some idea of rates of mutation and rates of evolution and we can sometimes calibrate those what we call molecular clocks with certain events you know when two oceans were finally cut off as a continent crashed into another continent and separated them and we know the timing of that from the rocks on land uh we can ultimately piece together a, a, a sort of a family history um, with some dates uh, and then look at the patterns of evolution in the ocean.
1: Oh, it's tough, though, isn't it? You think, oh, it would just be so nice if you could just get a nice fossil coming up on land <laughs> to tell you what everything was. And, oh, yeah. But um, so, um, so on a sort of similarish subject, I suppose, um, so we've got giant squid which live in the deep sea. We know they exist because they've been pulled up in sort of fishermen's nets. Um but we you know they're rarely seen. Um, so are there any other elusive animals out there that we, we, we're we pretty sure they exist, but we just haven't really ever seen them?
0: There are lots of elusive animals in the deep sea. The, the giant squid is pretty iconic. Mm. Um, so, I mean, it, it's got a history going back a long time. Pliny the Elder, writing in the first century, uh, gave an account, second-hand account, uh, of some guards of a, of some fish ponds on the coast of what's now Spain, uh, uh, apparently fighting off <laughs> some sort of <laughs> giant octopusy squid thing that came and tried to you know, raid the, the, these fish ponds. Um, they presented its body to their boss. They said they fought it with tridents. I have to suspect that it might have just have washed up dead as we know these things do. And they then said, oh, yeah, we fought it, boss, you know, and we deserve a bonus. Um, but anyway, Pliny put down this account describing the animal and describing suckers of its tentacles and the overall size of it. And it, it, it's quite a good description. So these things have occasionally been washing up you know, naturally dead on beaches and mystifying people through the centuries. Um, more recently, yes, getting caught in fishermen's nets. And we have actually seen them alive now in the deep ocean. So the first pictures were in 2005, um, and then video uh, a few years after that. Uh, but there are other big squid out there. Um, so the giant squid has a cousin, if you want to think of it like that, called the colossal <laughs> squid. Um, about the same length, probably, as adults. So up to 12, 13 metres long, from, from the, the very tip of the, the pointy bit at the kind of tail end to the very tip of the longest arms um the colossal squid about the same size probably a bit meatier uh, though a bit bit sort of beefier and tougher um and uh yeah i mean that that's been elusive for a long time and we've known about colossal squid since i think the species was described in 1925 from from baby specimens that were that were fished up um what's what's fun is you can have a guess at uh how many undiscovered species of large animal sea monster if you want to think of them (laughs) in those terms how many are out there from looking at the rate at which people have been finding new ones so this is quite a nice little mathematical trick um if we'd seen all the big animals in the ocean then it doesn't matter how much we carry on looking we're never going to find any more the rate of discovery will flatten off okay we won't keep keep finding new ones if we haven't, if there are still plenty out there, then we're likely to keep finding them fairly regularly as we carry on going looking. So you can basically plot, you know, all of the discoveries and descriptions of large animal species in the oceans over time. And you get a what we call a collector's curve, a discovery curve. And it gradually starts to flatten off. And when we've seen them all, it will be completely flat. OK, there will be no no more new discoveries it hasn't flattened off yet. Oh. And when it's close to flattening off, you can then fit an equation to it to predict how many more are out there. Where will it flatten off? And the estimate is of the order of yeah, probably, yeah, probably probably another 10 or so, 10 to a dozen that are probably out there that we haven't even seen yet. Oh. So there are still discoveries to make. There's still big things out there.
1: I mean, the top pop culture one you hear about a lot is megalodon, isn't it? People say, oh, megalodon, it's still out there. But I know that marine biologists say, yes, probably not. So...
0: I'm afraid definitely not. Okay, Now, now, you know, and when I say definitely not to Megalodon or to mermaids or to these other things that that capture our imagination, and I think it is wonderful um, that the deep is this place of mystery that captures our imagination, people say, well, hang on, if you haven't explored it all, how can you say for sure that it isn't out there? Well, what we haven't yet seen has to fit with our understanding of how the oceans work, okay? Otherwise, we're wrong about everything. And I don't think we are wrong about everything because we can make very good predictions as to what lives where. And, you know, we we understand ocean currents and we understand the geological history and the ecology and all that kind of thing. We would have to be wrong about all of that for these things to exist. So, so, you know, I'm not even gonna say probably not, I will say definitely not. Uh, And there are several reasons um, for that um conditions in the ocean when megalodon went extinct a little over two and a half million years ago um conditions in the ocean were really quite different then then they changed um the food source for them the 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 types of whales they were feeding on changed uh and for for a shark that big uh they would be wide roaming to get all the food they need to support them as this super apex predator and we know they were wide wide roaming because we find their teeth (laughs) you know all over the place uh and so if they were out there today they would have to be equally wide roaming we would have seen them by now and unlike the movie the meg which i do enjoy <laughs> they can't unfortunately be lurking at the bottom of deep trenches like they were in that movie because sharks shark all the types of shark they can't live deeper than about 4000 meters deep in the ocean for biochemical reasons there's a, they have a depth limit So they're not hiding in the bottom of the trenches, unfortunately, either. (laughs)
1: Um, So also talking sharks again, but um, many animals in the deep sea. So that's you've got sharks, you've got squid and snails. um, Quite a lot of them will sort create their own light. Um, And again, this is a really wide ranging skill they've got. So um, how do they do this? Are they all doing it in the same way or have they got different methods of doing it?
0: Animals creating their own light in the deep sea, it's... um It's actually probably the most widespread form of communication on our planet. (laughs) And again, because it's happening in the deep ocean out of our immediate sight, you know, we we tend not to think of it like that. Um, But yes, there's lots of animals creating light, using it for lots of different purposes. And they are making light in different ways as well. Um, Sometimes they are able to make it themselves in their own cells. Quite often they are doing it in partnership with bacteria. Uh, and they might have organs that house bacteria um, inside them, inside their tissues and so on, uh, in order to to produce light uh, from that organ. And they use light for lots of different purposes. And it does depend a little bit on where they where they live. So the basics are they will. Some animals will use light to hunt. So this is the other thing about we, we think of the deep sea is not eternally ultimately dark there is light down there there is this what we call bioluminescence light created by life there isn't sunlight beyond a thousand meters but there's still light in the form of bioluminescence um, so some animals are making light to hunt down there and this is also why a lot of deep sea animals do have eyes people are often surprised why is it dark down there how come you know like some of these cave fish how come they, they, they haven't lost their eyes and, well many of them are are, are visual predators still Um, creating light to hunt searchlights to illuminate their prey or lures to attract their prey is the other way of doing it and ambush their prey some of them are using light to evade predators to confuse predators to create a distraction so they can get away so we've got that kind of arms race going on down there Um, they're also creating light to attract and signal to potential mates as well so there's communication with members of the same species through light uh, as well Um, so those are those are kind of the 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 basics of it and then in that special zone where there's still very faint light coming from above not bright enough for photosynthesis but still some faint downwelling light what we call the twilight zone well there they also that's actually where we get most bioluminescence 90 percent of the animals living in that zone make light uh, and many of them are using it for camouflage. And what they're doing is they have lights on their bodies, often on the underside of their bodies, that match the faint light that's welling down from above. So that breaks up their silhouette. It means they don't cast a sharp shadow because a lot of their potential predators are beneath them looking up for shadows of prey passing overhead in the faint light that's coming down from above. So it's all about trying not to cast a shadow and trying to spot shadows of potential prey. And one of my favourite examples of this is is a fish um, called the hatchet fish. And it lives in that twilight zone. Uh, It's called a hatchet fish because its body is um, very, very narrow from side to side across its body. So it's a bit like an axe head, hence hatchet fish. Um, so it's very thin across its body and that's itself is to try and avoid casting much of a shadow okay by not having much of a profile in cross-section like that and we've known for a long time and this you can see this if you if you ever watch original bbc blue planet first series from 2001 <laughs> they showed how the hatchet fish you know it does this um, but the hatchet fish has got these light producing organs on its underside and um, where it lives there's faint Blue downwelling light, and those light organs produce faint blue light that matches that light coming from above. And that ev- enables it to, to do this kind of vanishing trick and, and break up its silhouette and just, just sort of blend into that background when seen from below by a lot of, which is where a lot of its predators are. So it can kind of vanish um, in that way. Now, we've known about that for a long time, but only very recently. Um, have researchers figured out? Well, that, that's fine. It's got these glowing organs on its underside, but its eyes are on on its head, and they're looking out sideways. How does it know if it's getting it right? How can it tell if its if its light organs on its stomach you know, on its on it, you know, its underside are producing the right you know intensity of light to do the vanishing trick? Well, people have recently shown that it has another light organ that shines into its eye. And it doesn't project forwards like a searchlight or anything like that. It only shines into its eyes, presumably wired up with the ones on the fish's underside. And it's like a reference light. So wow. the fish can see this little light in, its, you know, in the corner of its eye, compare it with the light that it can see around it for the depth where it's living, and make sure the two match in order to get the vanishing trick right. So that's, I think that's incredible. And that's only very recently Um, been shown and then the other reason i love the hatchet fish is this is great so this is how it does its vanishing trick for predators that are living below it looking up for for shadows yeah but what about the predators that are swimming alongside lighting up prey with searchlights what how does it hide from them well again much more recently um than you know when when the vanishing ship trick was shown in blue planet one we now know that when it comes to predators hunting from the sides, the hatchet fish's skin has got these tiny structures in it that are what are called photonic crystals. And they're a particular structure that scatters light. So if a predator with a searchlight approaches it from the side and lights it up with that, instead of getting a really bright reflection back from the sides of the fish and, and therefore knowing that you know, there's a hatchet fish, tasty morsel, the light gets scattered around the hatchet fish's body. So it's almost like a kind of invisibility cloak bending light around the fish's body. You know, so it cool. doesn't reflect so much back to <laughs> a predator. So it is fantastic. It's, you know, that's almost like the predator of science fiction, isn't it? With kind of you know, in, invisibility cloak bending light around it, plus those other tricks. You know, this is the ingenuity of nature uh, that we see in the deep ocean that fascinates us.
1: I saw something the other day as well about um, there's a fish that's been discovered and I think that um, it's a deep sea fish again and it's as black as Vanta black. Aha.
0: Good, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <I'm glad you're laughs> Next on my list, good. <laughs> yeah, so other ways you can hide from predators. Yeah, if you're a hatchet fish, maybe you can bend light around them. The other way you can hide from predators, of course, is, is by making your skin really non-reflective, really absorbent um, of light. Now, things that appear black to us um, in the everyday they actually probably reflect about two percent of the light back to us um, we still see them as black but you know they're not they're not as black as they could be they're not absorbing all of the light uh, and so again recently a team of researchers have found fish in the deep ocean um, that have little granules um, of uh dark pigment under their skin arranged in a way that is ideal for absorbing as much light as possible and they absorb all but half a percent of the light that falls on them. So you know they are really, really black, ultra black. In fact, is how they describe them. Uh, and so, and that means the range at which they can be detected by a predator searchlight um, is actually you know much, much shorter. You know they, they 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 they're just not seen by predators until they're right on top of them, uh, which of course will more less chance to encounter a predator, more time to escape, that that kind of thing. Uh, so again these amazing adaptations and then the other neat trick we get in the twilight zone the other way you can avoid casting a shadow is to make your body see-through make yourself transparent you know the the like the invisible man of science fiction which when you think about it i mean that that's incredible because you you don't just make your skin see through you've got to make all your internal organs you know how do you make a see through animal. That's an incredible adaptation. And we see that that has evolved independently in several groups of animals. There are giant amphipod crustaceans that live in the twilight zone, forever swimming, you know, not crawling around on the seabed or whatever, uh, that are translucent, entirely translucent like that. Uh, there are squid that are entirely, they're, they're called glass squid because <laughs> they look like blown glass. And again, see through. Uh, to avoid casting a shadow, so you could be ultra black, you could be transparent like the Invisible Man, you could have an invisibility invis-i- cloak like the Hatchetfish. fish.
1: So, if you've got fish that are um, transparent or translucent, then if they're making themselves see through, then have they got? Um, is their blood sort of translucent as well? Then, and all their organs inside their bodies.
0: Yeah, they, they're ama- um, you know, not not perfectly mm. see through. and and in fact, the you know the ultra black fish are probably. More camouflaged um, when it comes to light shining on them than these translucent things. Um, but yeah, and a, a problem that uh, if, if you're going for the see-through solution, a problem is, well, what happens if you swallow a meal <laughs> that's a glowing animal? <laughs> now it's sitting in your see-through stomach and it's glowing out, <laughs> advertising <laughs> you to predators. So some animals um, have actually got pigmented guts. Uh, And another of my my favorites is something called the blood belly comb jelly. Uh, And it's so-called because it has a red, it's see-through in its body, but it has a red pigmented gut. Um, Now, red generally appears black in the deep sea because there aren't natural sources. There are very few natural sources of red light. Red light gets filtered out by the seawater quickest Um, So, you know, none of the wavelengths that are getting down into the twilight zone are red. There are a few deep sea predators that make their own red light. um, And that light probably can't be seen by a lot of their prey. A lot of deep sea fish aren't sensitive to red wavelengths of light um, in their eyes uh but so so if you want to to make a cheap black pigment that isn't as complex as ultra black and so on which is energetically cr- expensive to create if you can make a red pigment in the deep sea it will appear black to most things so um that's why actually that there's a lot of red color down there a lot of the deep sea shrimp are red things like the blood belly comb jelly its belly is red uh, because red is a cheap way of appearing black down there so people also say to me yeah, how come things are colorful down there um, when it's dark why are these things colored uh, and sometimes it is for that reason red is actually a form of camouflage in the deep sea sometimes things are other colors just because it's the color of the thing their bodies are made of you know if their exoskeleton is made of a particular compound and it has a color then it will be that color it doesn't mean they're using it you know to advertise or to signal necessarily when we get down to animals that live at the seabed, so, you know, not the ones that are, that are floating up in the twilight zone and, and and then the midnight zone beneath it, but we get actually down to, to the seabed. Um, how do animals make a living there? Well, lots of different ways. Um, there's this sort of constant, gentle, uh, we call it marine snow, which is a wonderfully poetic <laughs> description, but essentially it's poo and snot and remnants of... Small living things from the ocean above that sink their way down into the deep ocean. And they they form this kind of detritus that that slowly rains down on on the seafloor. But it's, it's organic matter. So it's potentially got food value for anything that can eat it. So one way you can make a living on the ocean floor is just to plow your way through this stuff that's raining down from above and we see quite a few animals that do that so these sea cucumbers do that they they sort of you know, plow across the ocean floor uh, eating all the time pooing all the time <laughs> leaving a trail behind them extracting whatever nutrition they can from that stuff raining down from above But occasionally there can be richer food parcels arriving from above if something bigger like a a fish um, or even really big like a whale or whatever dies and its body naturally sinks to the ocean floor. So we've also got animals that are scavengers of those larger what we call food falls. But of course, those are further apart in space and further apart in time than that constant rain of of detritus. Uh, So there it's about finding the next meal. Uh, and we see some amazing adaptations amongst those scavengers for literally sniffing out um, a food then their next meal. So they, they'll they have sort of search strategies crossing the prevailing ocean current to detect odor plumes of dead things that arrived at the seabed and then swimming up that odor, odor plume to home, home in on it and, and make a meal of it as a scavenger. Uh, and then, of course, the other um, solution you've got is is to be a predator uh as well to just eat one of these other animals uh so and there's there's a couple of ways you can go about being a predator you could be an active hunter um so zooming about you know maybe with searchlights or whatever uh hoping to to encounter prey and then strike and 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 take that uh, that prey but that's energetically quite costly so a lot of the predators we see down at the ocean floor are what we call ambush predators So they will sit and wait. Uh, So they're not expending much energy. Their metabolism is ticking over slowly. But they've got, again, amazing senses, Um, particularly things like a sort of extended sense of touch. They might be able to detect any disturbance in the water some distance away uh, and then strike. Um, So a nice example of those are these things that we call tripod fish. There are lots lots of different species of tripod fishes, and they have modified fins what we call the pectoral fins that come off the chest and modified tail fin Uh, these are all lengthened so that they are like the three prongs of a tripod and they will sit resting on those three fins hence tripod fish um, on the ocean floor and they'll sit there quietly not using much energy and they'll be pointed kind of up into the current and they'll be feeling for and sniffing for anything that's you know, within within striking distance, basically. Uh, so we see a lot of ambush predators uh, down there as well.
1: Well, that was brilliant. So we're going to wrap it up there for today. In the next episode, John and I are going to delve deeper into some of the intriguing habitats and niches that exist in the deep ocean, including trenches, ridges, whale falls, and hydrothermal vents. So if you've enjoyed this episode and we'll be tuning into the next one, then please do subscribe. And if you can spare a minute, leave a review and let us know what subjects you want us to tackle next. And if you want more primers on the big ideas in science from the BBC Science Focus team, then head over to our website, sciencefocus.com, or find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.